This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on, Danny, is we're talking about Russian public opinion related to Ukraine. And what sparked this is there's a professor named Ian Garner who has a very interesting Twitter feed, and he's an expert on Russian propaganda. And he has been monitoring the social media channels in Russia where they're discussing the events that are taking place in Ukraine. After the massacre in Bucha and all the all the images that came out about that and more and more information and detail coming out, they just released a video where they showed Russian troops actually taking a group of men out of a house and taking them into the field where they shot them. There's more and more evidence. There's a, a Russian soldier who's pled guilty to uh, committing war crimes. So the evidence is mounting. But in the Russian social media channels, there was a lot of support for not just not just denial of what happened, but also support for the massacres and saying that they should be doing more. And it was really quite shocking to watch the social media unfold. And Ian documented it, and he's here to talk to us about it. I think it's very hard for us as Americans to understand this. And it goes to problems that we've had in a lot of the conflicts that we've seen, which is that we really do tend to think about the world as being full of people who are kind of like us, but just speak different languages. And the answer is, people are kind of different. And in Russia, you have seen not just support, as you said, Mark, and as Ian has very nicely documented, not just support for what the soldiers are doing, not just support for Russia's patriotic incursion into Ukraine, but for the atrocities that are happening, you know, where you hear intercepts of just appalling discussions between Russian soldiers and their commanders, between Russian soldiers and their family members, the sort of brutalizing of individuals that really we're used to talking about in the context of people like Pol Pot or concentration camps. We haven't even heard stories as abominable as this from China, at least, you know, none that have come out recently. And it is really hard to understand that a lot of Russians, not all, for sure not all, but more than I think I would have believed possible, actually support this and support what happened in Bucha. It's very hard to ascertain what Russians truly believe because Russia is, as you say, if not yet a completely totalitarian state, it's well on its way. He's looking at social media. We're seeing the same kind of manipulation of social media internally in Russia that you see when the Russians interfered in our elections here. And they would put use bots and other things and use social media as a tool to spread disinformation. The difference is here in the United States, we have uh, free media where you can get access to independent information. In Russia, there is no free media. And so, you know, the disinformation on the social media is actually much more effective because there's nothing to counter it. The narratives on Russian state television and Russian state radio and Russian newspapers is all 
telling the Russian people the Ukrainians are Nazis, they're killing and massacring and torturing Russian-speaking people, and we're there to defend Russian-speaking people against these Nazis. And they don't have a lot of access to information to counter that. So it's very hard. And then on top of that, you have the added problem of there's all these polls of what Russians think. Well, you know, it's illegal in Russia under a decree from Putin to criticize the war, which they don't even call a war. It's a special military operation. And if you criticize it, you can be arrested. So I'm a pollster and I call Vladimir up and he, Vladimir doesn't know me. And I say, hey, Vladimir, what do you think of the war? What do you think he's going to say? He's either going to hang up or tell me what Putin wants to hear. So it's a very complex process of trying to figure out what Russians really think. It is. But at the same time, it does go to the question about how this war resolves itself. One of the things that you hear and you see in discussions among policymakers and pundits in the United States is... Yes, but once they see the body bags, they're going to want to leave. They're going to lose all faith in Putin because they're not winning and somebody's going to stand up to him. And I think that rests at least in part on a false analysis of how Russians see this. Now, Mark, of course you're right. You know, there's no natural truth that people know. We've learned this again and again and again. If you are told that your neighbors are subhumans, that they, you know, burn babies, that they're all Nazis, that they're drug addicts, and that they are bent on destroying you. You know, there's nothing that should suggest to you that perhaps that's untrue, if you have no other source of information. That being said, what this means is that there's not going to be a groundswell of resentment and anger against Putin inside Russia that might force him to try to end this war. And well, that's very bad news for us. Well, a couple of things. One, it depends on how the war goes. If he loses... It doesn't seem um, to be going that well, dude. I'm I know, sorry. But, but, you can, <laughs> but that information can be contained in Ukraine for now. When the Russian troops start coming... If, let's, say, let's say the Ukrainians succeed in driving most of the Russian troops out and Putin's forced to retreat. He doesn't have any kind of victory that he can claim. And the Russian troops start coming home the ones that lived, they're going to tell people in their country what actually happened in Ukraine, some of them. There are obviously there are these particular units that are sent to carry out war crimes, but a lot of these are just conscripts and kids who were told they were on a training mission and then all of a sudden they were in Ukraine. We've seen the, the text messages back from some of these kids to their families saying, Mama, I was told that it was a training mission. I was told the Ukrainians were greeted as victors. They're throwing themselves in front of tanks. A lot of those Russians are going to come back and tell people what actually happened. And that could change things. I mean, it took a long time for the war in Afghanistan to become the albatross around the old Soviet Union that it was. And it may take a little time for Ukraine to have that kind of impact back home. They have lost more people in Ukraine than they lost in 11 years in Afghanistan. They've lost almost in every single category more equipment than they lost. I saw a side-by-side analysis of how much equipment and how many personnel they'd lost, and it was absolutely staggering. You know, And the other thing, Danny, keeping in mind about when you look at how a totalitarian regime keeps control, right, they get a monopoly on information, right? So if you looked at Poland during the communist era, you know, they have state-run media, they have straight-run newspapers. 
there was an independent source of information, which was the church in Poland, right? The church was allied with the solidarity movement, allied with the opposition. And so they had underground newspapers, they had underground meetings. There was a little bit of a bastion of freedom there within the totalitarian superstructures. In Russia, that space doesn't exist or that alternate source of information doesn't exist because the church is aligned with Putin as well. The Russian Orthodox Church and Patriarch Kirill, he's a Putin propagandist. He goes out and every Sunday preaches from his pulpit that the war in Ukraine is justified, that the Ukrainians are Nazis, and he blesses troops before they go in. They actually had a photo on Twitter the other day of Russian Orthodox hierarchy blessing a missile whose name was Satan. Right? So you, you can't make this Russian shit up. Priests, you can't make it up. Blessing Satan, the missile that was going to go get used against the Ukrainians. So there's literally no space for independent information to reach the Ukrainians until their troops start coming home. And that's why they also don't want to let the bodies come back. The Ukrainians have like freezer trucks filled with Russian bodies that they're asking the Russians to take back to repatriate and they're refusing because they don't want to have to return bodies to mothers and wives back home. Well, I mean, they're going to figure it out eventually. Listen, I want to talk about accountability and I want to talk about prosecutions and I want to talk about the complicity of the Russians. But first, let's talk to Ian. For those who have not seen his Twitter, he is an historian and a translator of Russian war propaganda. His first book just came out this year. It's called Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. And it actually looks at how Russian propagandists created this narrative of martyrdom, which really has persisted since the Battle of Stalingrad in the 1940s against the Nazis to now. We were really lucky to get him to join us. Here's our interview. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You tweeted out recently, I cataloged Russian social media responses to Bucha for the uh, Journal of Genocide Research, and what I found was almost unspeakable. Tell us what you found and why it was so unspeakable. So I conducted this research very rapidly after the events in Bucha, and there was a huge response to what happened on Russian social media feeds. And you might, you might have imagined that they would want to not discuss this at all, just kind of gloss over it, move on, pretend it didn't happen. But in fact, it seemed to cause just as much of a stir over there as it did over here. And of course, the message that Russians were getting from their government was completely topsy-turvy. Is reality turned upside down. So there were all sorts of accusations that this was a fake. It was a cover-up that actually the murders did happen, but they were carried out by maybe Americans, maybe British special troops, maybe it was all a psyops, maybe the Ukrainians did it. So there were lots of contradictory narratives, firstly, that didn't make sense, right? They, They were obviously untrue and didn't stand up to the slightest bit of scrutiny. But when I dug down into what social media users on more highly nationalist and patriotic groups were saying, the messages were really very frightening. And some of those messages were, I I would say the majority of the messages, didn't merely accept the government's narratives that this was a fake or had been conducted by somebody else, but actually suggested that the Ukrainian victims somehow deserved what had happened. In particular, urging the Russian troops on to carry out more of this sort of atrocity in the future. And this is in some ways the culmination of a process of almost a decade of dehumanizing of Ukrainians in the Russian media. 
I'm not sure what sort of a dehumanization campaign we would need to be subjected to, but I can't see anybody I know actually being willing, for example, to urge her husband, a soldier, on to rape multiple women and then murder their children in front of them, which is some of the intercepted calls that we've heard. I mean, yes, of course, you're absolutely right. This has been a campaign of dehumanization, but there's something going on in Russia as well. It is important that we understand that this has been a source of popularity, right, for Vladimir Putin in some places. Yeah, I I think we have to be careful with the way we discuss this. We have to not sensationalize this too much in that not all Russians are on board with this. And the language that I'm talking about in that particular study does come from these really extreme nationalist groups. However, it is alarming that there is at least a substantial subsection of the Russian population who are so engaged with the idea that Ukrainians simply shouldn't exist that they are willing to voice these thoughts and they are willing to go beyond the bounds of what we would consider any ordinary sort of morality. And of course, the bitter and, and deeply unpleasant irony is that they claim to be waging a repeat of the Second World War to defend Ukrainians, whereas in reality, the aim is clearly in these groups and egged on very much by the government, especially over the last couple of weeks. So through the middle of May towards the end of May, the idea that Ukraine itself as a nation, as an idea, should simply be erased. So talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned in your article where you went through all this, the kind of coverage that Russian audiences have been getting from their media. What are the narratives that they are being told in the media about what's happening in uh, in Ukraine? So more broadly, I think Everybody is now probably familiar with the idea that Ukraine is supposedly, and you have to bear with me as we go through the looking glass here, Ukraine is filled with Nazis. That narrative has only expanded in scope over the course of the war. So on the sort of declaration of special operation speech, as it were, that Putin made in February, it was only the Ukrainian government that needed to be quote unquote denazified. Whereas now we find every day the media is being filled with stories that ordinary Ukrainians are being discovered to be Nazis. Ukrainian soldiers are leaving behind whole troves of swastika flags, photographs of Hitler, and so on and so forth. And of course, there is pictorial evidence showed, but once again, it's flimsy and transparently a setup by Russian media who are on the ground there. And in tandem with that, the kind of language that is used to describe Ukrainians, and I already mentioned the word dehumanizing, is the kind of language that we would associate with, and I hesitate to make historical comparisons because it's always clumsy, but with the Nazi regime. So Ukrainians are described as rats, as nyeludi, which means unpeople. They're the opposite of people. Ukrainians are described as dirt, as scum, as antichrists, as Satanists. So painted up in the most abhorrent language you can possibly imagine, And then over and over again, we hear that these people don't deserve to exist. And of course, many ordinary Russians are hesitant to buy into this. But those people who are already hyped up about this war, uber-patriotic, very aggressive, macho nationalists, are willing to buy into this stuff. So, okay, macho 
nationalists are willing to buy into propaganda and sectarianism and nationalist hatred and things like that. There's a long history, though, and you're right. Obviously, it's always easy to kind of slip into these historical analogies and call everybody a Nazi. God knows the Russians are doing it, and we do it perhaps more often than we should. But what is at the root of this? Why has it been as easy as it has been to sell Russians on the notion that somehow their neighbors in Ukraine are less less than people? In a sense, it hasn't been easy in that this isn't a new phenomenon. And I mentioned that this is the culmination of a decade-long process. In reality, it goes back centuries. There is a deeply rooted idea in Russia that Western influence is just inimically out to get Russia, to destroy it in some way. And you can go back to the beginning of the 18th century when Peter the Great tried to Europeanize Russia, and he was described as the Antichrist and caused a schism in the Russian Orthodox Church. And there are still what are known as old believers who reject the sort of Petrine Church today. And when you plug in the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fear that Russia's sort of traditional territory, or what Russia would see as its backyard and its traditional territory, i.e. Ukraine, is somehow drifting away from it and into the clutches of the West, Russia becomes more afraid. And then on top of that, we layer in these myths of World War II, which for Russians is really a story about sacrifice and about saving itself from a threat from the outside. Not just the German threat, but an amorphous and somewhat spectral threat that is just non-Russian. And so a Ukraine that is becoming increasingly Western, a Ukraine that is in Russia's backyard and yet is drifting away from Russia, and increasingly becoming non-Russian, becomes incredibly scary when you view the world in those terms. And so all of these age-old myths are activated in the government's propaganda. And there's a lot of appeal in there to ordinary people, right? Once you strip back the real extreme stuff, ordinary people are genuinely worried that America and NATO, the West and Ukraine, who are all essentially synonymous as just this shadowy threat, and it's all quite conspiratorial, right? People are really worried that Russia itself is under threat, and that's why they perceive this as a defensive war. So as you pointed out, this is on social media, this is a subset of the Russian population and the more extreme groups that are that are talking. It would be sort of like trying to discern American public opinion by looking at the worst Twitter trolls to some extent. How much do we know about what the Russian population actually thinks? Because obviously it's a dictatorship. They've criminalized speaking out against the war. So if a stranger picks up the phone and calls a Russian for a public opinion poll, there was one poll uh, the New Yorker just, there was an opposition-minded pollster. And when he called to ask him attitudes of the war, he said out of 31,000 people who were called, 29,400 ended the conversation as soon as they knew what the subject was. It's not like people feel like they can speak openly to a stranger who calls up and says, hey, what do you think of the war in Ukraine? <laughs> How much do we know about what Russians really believe and what they really think? And can polling be done in a country like Russia in any accurate way? In a word, No. The surveys and the polls that we're hearing about, and, and of course we want to see that polling, right? We're so used to it in a democracy that we can more or less accurately measure opinion. We just, we just want to get those numbers about Russia and understand what's going on, but we can't. The polling just can't be carried out, and when it can, it's 
deeply, deeply flawed. So how do we measure public opinion? Well, we've got to go about it in a really, really roundabout way. And a lot of it is by adopting methods like I adopted by looking at social media groups, social media commentary, by recognizing the the very limited data samples that we're looking at. But over time, we can start to build up a picture. And what's interesting about this particular conflict and the Russian context in general is that we're almost looking for the wrong thing in that public opinion in Russia doesn't really matter to a certain extent. There is not going to be a popular uprising today, tomorrow, or even in the next year or two. The opposition is more fragmented than it has ever been. And of course, that doesn't mean we should be completely cynical and pessimistic and hope for nothing better in the future. But the security services and the government have such control over public discourse, the public space, and the population in the physical sense of the word, that how much does it really matter whether it's 60% of the people that support the war or 80% or 50%? The answer is that number doesn't change anything. Right? Russia is going to be able to withstand a whole lot more losses of people and money before anything really substantially threatens the government. So then one of the things we've seen, for example, is that the Ukrainians have freezers with bodies of Russian soldiers who've died, and the Russians won't take them back. That they've brought incinerators into Ukraine to incinerate the bodies of Russian soldiers because they're afraid of bringing them back. So they are worried about public opinion to some extent, aren't they? In the sense they're afraid that war widows and mothers who are you know, getting their children back and that that'll get people upset. So they, do, they are somewhat responsive, aren't they? Well, of course, it's much easier not to upset your population, right? It's much, much easier if you have a population who are g'd up and excited about the war and not opposed to the government. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that much. And just for a parallel example, look to Belarus. Look what happened in the presidential elections there in 2020 when Lukashenko lost the election despite his flawed attempts to rig it. And there was a huge anti-government protests There was violence. The opposition were quite well organized there. And ultimately, what did the government do? Well, they just brought out the arbitrary arrests, detentions, torture, and they've stamped all of it out again and completely sidelined and destroyed the opposition. And that's what the Russian government, I suspect, will do if any opposition does start to grow. So, Ian, it was very interesting to me in thinking about this book that you put out this year about Stalingrad, how the narrative of Stalingrad continues to imbue Russians thinking about themselves. In other words, though, as you rightly say, it wouldn't matter if support were 20% because the regime is the regime and it is increasingly a totalitarian regime. But there is this pervasive mentality of surrounded victimhood in some senses that the government has done a very good job manipulating, but that continues also to pervade Russian senses of themselves. Will you talk a little bit about how this works vis-a-vis the current war with Ukraine? And maybe tell us a little bit about why you ended up writing this particular book as well. These are very big questions. I could talk about this all day. (laughs) Talk as long as you'd like. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that. You'll you'll get something that you wouldn't wouldn't want. Um, So the key point that we have to understand about World War II is this idea of sacrifice and martyrdom. 
that the war has been interpreted as a religious act, which is strange because we would think Soviet Union, Marxism, they're all atheists, right? They weren't very religious. But actually, the war was always painted as this idea that we were the chosen people who had to die. Those 27 million Soviets who died that we always hear about, they had to be killed. They had to be sacrificed in order that the world should be saved and that the new day should dawn. And that's that's the way it's most often portrayed in Russian movies and books. You know, the coming of light after the darkness. And of course, Stalingrad is the moment, the heart of the war. It's the symbol where everything boils down to this microcosmic little patch of territory of just individual Russians fighting against individual Germans. And that's, that's what makes the story so powerful. And so today, when we talk about losses in the war, in the present, Russians may well again be thinking, hold on, sacrifice is not that bad, right? Sacrifice, death is not necessarily a bad thing when we interpret the world in those religious terms, if we see this as a holy war. And again, not all Russians will buy into this, but there will be enough Russians who will interpret the world in these eschatological messianic terms. And we'll think today is another day in which we're kind of living through this apocalyptic era where terrible things have to happen in order for us to renew the world. And when you're on the outside of all of this, it sounds completely stark, raving bonkers, right? It doesn't make any sense at all. But just like when you're not a believer in any religion or faith, it doesn't really make sense, even when it's explained to you. And so this really interests me, because this is just a topic that keeps coming up throughout Russian history. The idea of these cataclysmic turning points and the way in which the entire culture seems to be constructed around the idea of ordinary people dying and learning to tolerate death being all around and yet somehow not sinking into complete nihilism about this. Because how did the Soviets not just want to overthrow Stalin after the first year of the Second World War before Stalingrad, which was just a disaster? It was world-class terrible, and even back then, everybody knew it. And again, without wanting to make lazy historical parallels, I can't help but think of the first couple of months of this war. You talked about it in religious terms. The difference between the time of Stalingrad and today, of course, is that the Russian Orthodox Church is back in the center of Russian life. And you have the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, who is the biggest booster of the war in Ukraine out there, blessing the troops, blessing the generals, having Putin over at mass. Talk to us about the impact of that. I think it's really important to understand that the church and the state have often existed in Russian history in this kind of symbiotic relationship, where there's just been this careful dance between the two institutions, wresting power back and forth from one another. And I mentioned Peter the Great and the church at the beginning of the 18th century. It goes back way longer than that. And today what we find is something that I think is a little bit new, and that is a church in which there effectively is no separate church. The church and the state are just completely thoroughly entwined in a corrupt, in the literal financial sense of the word, relationship. But also the church itself has become corrupted in a theological sense. The religion that it preaches is not the religion of the Bible, and this has caused great upsets and 
a lot of clashes with Orthodox churches abroad that you can go and look at. But the church essentially preaches the state's messages, and the state uses the language of religion to wrap itself up in this sense of being on a utopian messianic mission to save Russia, save Orthodoxy, save the world. And if, if you want a really striking visual representation of it, go look up the Cathedral of the Armed Forces in Moscow. And this is this huge cathedral built in the center of Moscow that has pictures, icons, which of course are extremely important to Orthodox believers, that are both secular heroes, military heroes, including from World War II, and older religious saints, biblical figures. Putin goes there, the army turns up there, there are displays about World War II, and most strikingly of all, it was opened when 9th of May, Victory Day 2020. So this is a church-state religion. This is a kind of religious politics in which we, we just can't separate the two things. They are one and the same. It's really fascinating to me to listen to you talk about this. So, you know, my area of specialty is the Middle East. And when I usually hear this kind of language, messianic sense of victimhood, corruption of the holy book in the service of an ideological agenda, we're talking about Islamist extremists. We're not talking about Russians. So it is really interesting. And I, I don't have a clever thing to say about that here. It is just, it's fascinating to me to hear it because I think that as Americans, we tend not to think of, of either conflicts or our enemies in that light because uh, we think about agenda-driven conflict. You want this territory, not that you have some sort of ideological right to it or that you're going to suit your, you know, your entire religious establishment around justifying it, which is so outside of our ken. I wonder what this tells us, though, about how the war is going to be prosecuted, particularly as the Russians are losing. If you sort of have to look at all that you've said today to us and all that you've studied, how would you look forward and assess how Russia's, what I think are very hard to characterize as anything other than losses, are going to end up being played inside Russia? It's extremely hard to say. And one of the difficulties about this whole situation has been the extent to which it surprised everybody. Because we've been looking, and even I, who've been thinking about irrational reasoning and irrational actions, but we've been looking for this risk-reward sort of framework to think about actions in. And I guess the question is, to, to not answer your question, if you... <laughs> we're, we're used to that. I guess the question is, to what extent that sort of murky middle of the population, who aren't the whatever it is, 15-20% of the population are going to be super hyped up, aggressive nationalists. They'll do anything. They really buy this stuff. 15 to 20%, whatever it is at the other end, pro-Europe, pro-democracy. They hate Putin. They hate him already. They hate him more now. What about the people in the middle? Which way will they end up moving? I don't know. And which way will the people who are surrounding Putin, the more elite functionaries, the ministers and the leaders of the armed forces... Which way will they end up going? Are they really engaged in these utopian myths and this sort of utopian thinking? 
in which case, God save us all and God save Ukraine. Or at some point, will they wake up and who knows how how it would play out, but give give Putin a bit of a poke and move him back towards the path towards uh, rationality. I guess one of the differences between Danny's analogy to the Islamists and and here is that most of the Islamists truly believe the propaganda, the the idea that this is a holy war. I don't know how much. Putin himself believes that he's actually engaged in a messianic struggle versus that he's co-opted the church and using it as a tool that he, I mean, this is a guy who claims to be a Christian, but, uh, you know, obviously his actions belie that, but he's grew up in the KGB in the Soviet era and, you know, working in East Germany, he was completely bought into the secular Soviet mantra back then. So if he does lose, and it looks like Incredible intelligence chief said that Ukraine's not going to stop fighting until every Russian soldier has been driven out of Ukraine's territory, assuming they have a catastrophic defeat like that. How does he absorb that and how does he react to that? <laughs> Good question. Good question. I, I think you, you really nailed the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is that Putin's in charge and nobody knows what Putin really is thinking. Is there some sort of twisted logic behind this war? Is there a point at which he will pull his forces back? Does he really believe in all of this stuff? Has he really had a turn towards this sort of strange utopian idealism in his later years? Does he want to create this great new empire, leave the world with a legacy? We have no idea. And anybody who says that they know, and all the reports of salacious gossip from behind Kremlin closed doors that you read in the media. It's all guesswork. It's reading shadows. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that does strike me for your somewhat older listeners is that this seems like a return to the days of the Soviet Union when nobody knew what was happening in the Kremlin and the Kremlin would make seemingly arbitrary and su- surprising decisions. But over time, historians as archives opened up and are now all slammed shut again, of course, is that a lot a lot of the stuff the Soviet Union was doing when it seemed like it, it was at its most ideological was driving them to no hands on the wheel and their eyes shut. And the best example is the war in Afghanistan that they launched in 1979, when it was basically a bunch of old dudes sat in a room talking to each other with no outside expertise, guessing at what might happen if they launched a small invasion of Afghanistan. So there's another probably clumsy historical parallel for you. So exit question for me, Ian, and this is fascinating. And, you know, you don't want to be clumsy about history, but history can be your guide. And one of the things that just, I guess, nags at me, and and I know this, as you, you know, very fairly say, there's no easy answer, is will there be a floodgate that opens? Will there be someone who stands up and says the emperor has no clothes. You know, in places like Syria, which are a police state, you really do have instances, as you did during the Arab Spring, where the people, even though they may agree with the government about some things, will absolutely stand up and just say, I've had enough. Understanding as you do and talking about how deep this mythology, if we can call it that, runs inside Russian society. Is that really a possibility? Or are we just sort of overlaying our own interests here? Yes, of course, it remains a possibility. 
everything is still on the table, and this is the glorious frustration of not knowing. But what we do know about the Kremlin over the last 20 years is that there are constant power struggles going on behind the scenes. However, Putin has consistently proved the master of dealing with them seemingly with without expending really any effort at all. There's never been a serious challenge to his leadership. He's always been one step ahead and has outflanked his opponents very easily, if you can even call them opponents, because they've barely even made it to that status. However, I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable that, and this is very much guesswork, nobody quote me on this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine a scenario in which somebody in power stands up, and I'm talking about someone with access to security forces, or a group of people stands up and says, enough is enough, and Putin is forced to, if not resign, then occupy a position of sort of father of the nation with an honorary title, or where Putin dies and chaos ensues. And if Putin dies suddenly, and we hear lots of rumours about his health, most of which I would discount immediately, if Putin dies suddenly, and he is, what, 70, give or take, who who knows what will happen? Then it will really will be, uh, it will be a day of the races. A free-for-all. Yeah, it's very frustrating, right? It's, it's frustrating to listen to podcasts like this and listen to experts say we don't know. But I feel it's it's important to be frank that nobody was expecting this to happen. Before 2014, nobody was expecting Russia to seriously seize Crimea and part of Ukraine in the way that they did. Nobody was expecting Putin to be in power for 22 years. And nobody was expecting the invasion before a few months ago. Nobody was expecting Butcher. Nobody was expecting the use of civilian targeting by, by the military artillery, right? And so consistently we've been confronted with unexpected situations. Anything might happen, but the future is going to be very bleak, at least the near future, because there is a generation of Russians who are feeling at best disenchanted with the West and Western ideas and very unwilling to engage with them on any terms whatsoever. Well, as my old boss, Don Rumsfeld, used to say, expect the unexpected. That seems to be the lesson that you've given us. Ian, thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing your insights. It was really eye-opening. Thank you for Depressing, having me. but eye-opening. Thank you, Ian. Really, we appreciate it. Great job. Cheers. So, Danny, you wanted to talk about accountability. So, you know, we've had this back and forth conversation. And part of the problem here is there is an element of, you know, well, I was just doing my duty by my Russian commanders. They told me that the Ukrainians were Nazis and uh, and drug users and that they wanted to kill us all. And they were going after ethnic Russians. So you can't blame me. And it's been interesting to see, you know, the discussions about how we're going to get that accountability because the Ukrainians just prosecuted and just convicted their first war criminal. There are still people who are pressing for this to be expatriated from Ukraine to the International Criminal Court. Yeah, uh, that shouldn't happen. (laughs) The Ukrainians should be able to prosecute their own war crimes, and we can provide them with support to do that. It's a fascinating side story to this whole conflict is how Ukraine and the war in Ukraine has driven a stake into globalism. Right. So normally you would be hearing from the left, uh, we need U.N. authorization to help the Ukrainians. We need United Nations action.
action. We need a UN Security Council resolution. Well, guess what? The perpetrator of the atrocity is a permanent member of the Security Council with a veto. It's all of a sudden they've suddenly they're bypassing the United Nations. The United Nations isn't quite so central to international peace and security. Their one way of getting back into the game is through the International Criminal Court and using that as the vehicle for the prosecutions to sort of uh, put the globalist veneer on top of the operation to push back Putin. The International Criminal Court was created to the extent that one even supports it. We don't uh, in the United States. We're not a member of it to prosecute war crimes where there were no domestic courts that were capable of doing so. Well, Ukraine is is proven itself to be a a sovereign and capable you know institution of government. They've already even in the midst of war started having free and fair trials for people who've committed these atrocities. So we shouldn't be trying to take away their sovereignty. The Russians are the ones who are trying to take away their sovereignty. We should be restoring their sovereignty and we should provide them with support. We should provide them with information. Uh, we should have international arrest warrants to if people try to escape, to arrest them and send them to Kiev to stand trial. But any effort to try and take this out of the Ukrainians' hands is just aiding and abetting Vladimir Putin's effort to, to, to take away their sovereignty. We should be restoring Ukrainian sovereignty, not superseding it. We should be restoring it, not superseding it. I agree with you. Another vital point. Everybody has heard me talk about this because it's one of the beasts that's been in my bonnet most of my life is the notion that there are not people who are external to the military and the government who are complicit in this. And that's another thing that I think deserves scrutiny. You can't punish all of Russia. You don't want to punish all of Russia. And there are people who fear crossing the regime and condemning the war. But there are all too many people who support it. And, you know, I've always talked about this book that I very much like called Hitler's Willing Executioners about the Germans who, you know, all after the war said, oh, but we just didn't know. But of course, they all did know because it was their neighbors who were being sent off to concentration camps. It was their neighbors whose stuff they were buying, whose houses they were moving into. It was the smoke they were seeing from the concentration camps. They knew what was going on. And one of the things that we've heard very clearly from a lot of Russians is they do know what's going on. They know what kind of atrocities are being perpetrated. And people need to be held to account. At the very least, if they are not prosecuted, they must be named and shamed in the court of global opinion. I really believe that firmly. And and just listening to Ian talk about this makes my blood boil, you know, listening to how average Russians are encouraging their soldiers to commit war crimes. Yes, there was the case that, I don't know if we were, to, we're talking about the same case now, but there was a story about a, a Russian soldier whose wife told him to go ahead and rape Ukrainian women, just don't tell me about it, right? Yes. You know, I mean, this Lovely. is a little, yeah literally the kind of thing that's happening with some of these folks. But again, it's important. We don't know what true Russian public opinion is, how much they, how much they know, how much they actually support it, how much they're simply afraid to answer the questions when pollsters call. And it is a totalitarian society. You can be arrested and, and disappeared for having criticized Putin's war. So a lot of the Russians are keeping their heads down and it's it's more cowardice than enthusiasm, I would think. I don't think we have any idea. And that's one thing that Ian made absolutely clear. We don't really know. It is a very opaque society, notwithstanding all of our hopes at the fall of the Soviet Union. It's well on its way back to those inglorious days. Which is why it's so important to win in Ukraine. That should be our sign off every single time, no matter what we talk about, which is why it's so important. Slava (laughs) Ukraini. 
Thanks, folks, for listening. As always, send your comments, complaints, compliments, <laughs> whatever it is. Send them on our way. We're, we're always happy to hear from you. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.